0: welcome to this episode of Drug Target Review's podcast sponsored by Biorad. I'm your host Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jorge Hauler, director and head of analytical development at Prevail Therapeutics, and Dr. Mark White, associate director of biopharma product marketing at Biorad. We'll be discussing the detection of host cell residual DNA, but first let's get to know our speakers. So Jorge, would you be able to tell our listeners a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm Jorge Haller. I'm the head and director of the analytical development department here at Revell Therapeutics, now a part of Eli Lilly company. And much of the work we do here is on AAB targeting uh, neurodegenerative diseases.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much. Uh, Mark, could you give us a bit of background to yourself?
2: Hi, everyone. My PhD is in biomedical sciences and then I left the academic realm and went to start building life science tools at a startup for about seven years, building three different platforms, and now the last few years at BioRad. And my team is focused on the applications and hardware that is specific for customers within the biopharma market segment and making sure that we can build platforms and assays and solutions for entire workflows to ensure the quality of cell and gene therapy.
0: So we're going to begin today just by reminding our listeners exactly how AAV vectors are used within gene therapy. So Jorge, could you start us off?
1: Yeah, sure. So there are many ways AAV can be used. So most commonly they're used for diseases that occur due to loss of function of a gene. So if you have a disease that causes a gene that's mutated and it loses function, what you do is you take the wild-type gene that's functioning and you put it in AAV, And then the good thing about AABs is they can go inside cells very well and express this gene. So this way you can correct the loss of function of the mutation that was causing the disease. But they're used for other things too. They can be used for delivering gene editing elements and they're also used for knocking down genes.
0: Brilliant. Mark, did you have anything to add?
2: I guess the way that I think about AVs is really it's a delivery mechanism for DNA and so in in gene therapy we use that to deliver as Jorge mentioned the corrected versions of genes and what I'm seeing now in the field is people are starting to get really creative and add as Jorge mentioned gene editing machinery and so that can either go in and directly edit the genes themselves or just modify them or get them to express more or less
0: Fantastic. So I'd like to just cover why it's important to ensure the quality then of AAV vectors. Jorge, what do you say?
1: Oh, well, many, many reasons. So firstly, they're used in humans, so we want to ensure that they're safe. But at, at the same time, you want to make sure that the AAV is functioning correctly. So there is a huge panel of tests that was are done on A, B drugs, safety, testing process-related impurities, and testing its biological activity to make sure that they're working correctly and they're very good. But I think
2: there's also an attribute to quality that is the efficiency of this product being the AAV itself, right? We want to make that process as efficient as possible. And so having really high quality AAVs allows us or our customers who are doing therapeutics to use less of the AAV. And so that's a really key part of measuring well and understanding what's in there and, and optimizing it to be as high quality as possible.
0: Definitely. So, I also wanted to discuss how to actually manufacture AV vectors. So, we'll start with what the traditional workflow looks like.
1: So, the way that you manufacture an AV, uh, you need a host cell. And to this host cell, we introduce elements that are going to express our capsid proteins that are going to make the virus, and also elements that we usually call gene of interest which is pretty much your wild-type gene or whatever element you want to deliver in this AAB. So the way you do this is you put these regions called ITRs around your gene of interest, and these are recognized by the capsid proteins. And when you have all these elements in your host cell, you start producing AAB.
2: Yeah, as Jorge said, we have to first construct plasmids that are transfected generally into the host cell. And the host cell is a key factory that we use. So we have to expand those cells. And then that creates a large amount of the viral vector. But then there's a lot of purification on the downstream side and the formulation side that has to happen. And Going through all of that, lysing the cells, pulling out all of the viral capsids, trying to get them as pure as possible through centrifugation, chromatographic purification, affinity chromatography. There's a ton of steps from crude cell lysate with AAV capsids in it all the way down to something that is purified and ready to go into a cell line in vitro or into the body of a patient, if that's how the therapy is gonna be delivered. And so all, all across that process, as we were talking about quality earlier, each step has a really specific function. So one key step after these cells are lysed is that everything inside that cell is dumped out into the media. And so we need to basically work what, stepwise to, to eliminate the host cell proteins and the host cell DNA and the cell fragments and all of those different components to really get just those viral particles in the end.
0: So what are some of the processes and technologies used within that workflow? Could you just give a bit of detail about that?
2: So endonucleases are one of the first things that are really important to digest nucleic acid contaminants after the cells are lysed. And then usually there's either centrifugation or or microfiltration to remove debris and fragments um, and clean things up before we go to affinity chromatography to remove serum and host cell proteins. And then in general, there's some type of either cesium chloride, ultrafugation or ion exchange chromatography to separate empty and full viral particles, and then finally kind of a a B-based capture of the viral particles to reduce host cell proteins and low molecular weight contaminants. That's generally the workflow and the steps that go into that process.
1: I think you described it very nicely, actually, Mark. So as Mark said, you can use plasmid DNA to, to insert these elements, the, the capsid proteins and your genome interest. Other ways to do it is also using baculoviruses. Uh, in this case your host cell is an insect cell line. Uh, and the baculovirus is like a virus that only can infect certain insect cell lines. But it's the same principle, one of them, one baculovirus will have your rep cap proteins, the, the other one, your genome, just... and then comes all the process that Mark described nicely. Like some people just harvest the media, some people can lyse the cells. And then you, you use nucleases to get rid of most of the DNA. And, and then the different techniques exist of how to purify them. Some of them, they go directly to affinity columns, some of them are really, really nice affinity columns out there. Then they do what we call a polishing comb. It's a comb that we just by different methods. And some other people, they use ultra centrifugation, some gradient, uh, iodexanol, chloramuses, like Mark said. And some people even combine both of them in order to get a very, very pure AV at the end.
2: Yeah, and just to, to add to it, I think it's a really interesting and exciting time to think about This whole process. And as Jorge said, some people are doing this and some people are doing that and people trying to work out how do we make these things as efficiently as possible with as high quality as possible. And there's a lot of different ways depending on what your final output looks like, how many particles you're trying to get with what starting cell type you have. And there's a lot of providers coming in with new technologies, new columns, new resins, Biorad has dropped a digital PCR, looking at quantifying various steps in the process where the nucleic acids are involved. There's just a huge amount of innovation coming in because it's kind of a nascent field that's really found success with some therapies being approved, like Zolt-Gensma and others. And so now that there's an intense interest in standardizing, if you think about where antibodies were 30, 40, 40 years ago, not standardized, the process was quite Variable between companies, and then it really started standardizing. I think the same thing is happening in gene therapy, and it's exciting to see. And Jorge, maybe you have a comment on that just as a high level perspective of being in gene therapy for a while and how
1: things are changing. No, definitely the purification, the analytics, everything is changing so fast. I mean, even in just a short span of two years, new technologies emerge. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. But yeah, it's not like the antibodies, it's much more complicated. It's, as Mark said, the antibodies is all set, right? Uh, very standardized. We're still not there, but we're still getting really, really high quality products in the end, which is important.
2: Yeah. And I think it, it's really about efficiency, right? So everybody's doing all the right quality stuff, right? And so the FDA is, is stringent and, and there's a lot of benchmarks and bars that we and our customers have to hit from a quality perspective. and. From what I'm seeing, it's about the efficiency of the process. It's about the efficiency between companies to where how you make an AAV becomes less of the competitive advantage and the field settles on a a, a more efficient process, let's say. And then it's really about which diseases are we going after and the focus will shift more in that direction.
0: Definitely. So I'd like to discuss how residual DNA can occur and then the importance of detecting this. So let's just start with how this can actually happen. Jorge, would you be able to outline why this can occur?
1: So residuals is something you're always going to have in your product. So when you produce your AV, right, you're producing these host cells that they have their own DNA. You are also using plasmids or baculovirus. There also is DNA. So you have your A-B in a mix of a lot of DNA. And as we discussed earlier, there's all these different steps to purify your A-B. And in the end, you, you need a very pure product, but it's impossible to get rid of all these initial process DNAs. And you end up with traces of it. And this is what we call process-related residuals. And one of them is the residual DNA and it's just coming from how you generate your your AAV. I mean,
2: we're producing a viral capsid packaged with the genome just inside a live cell. And those live cells are dying the entire time and kind of exploding and DNA is coming out. And then as Jorge mentioned, in in some process to maximize capture of the viral particles, we actually purposely lyse the cells or blow them up to get the viral particles out. But then their DNA is spilling out as well. DNA has got a negative charge. It's quite sticky. And so it, it's a challenge to remove it, as Jorge said, and, and get it down to an acceptable level that I believe is safe.
0: How would you summarize the importance of detecting this then? Jorge, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, it's very important because we're using the AAB in humans, right? We don't want to give any co-cell or plasmid DNA in it, right? So there are really, really a lot of controls we do on the drug and testing. And there are also limits that are set up to ensure that we only have very low amounts of traces. And much of these limits are set up by the FDA or other regulatory agencies that have guidelines on on how much can you have and what size is safe and allowed.
2: Yeah, it's all about safety. Um, And I think that there is a concern that these fragments of DNA getting into the therapy if they're at too high of a dose uh, in the background could have some adverse effect. And so that's why the FDA has released very clear guidelines on the amount per dose that's allowable, as well as the size, as Jorge said. And we take that very seriously because we, we are one of the vendors that is providing kits to help measure this, and also because our customers take it very seriously.
0: Clearly, it's very important to detect residual DNA. So how can then it actually be analysed throughout the production process?
1: We take samples at different parts of the process, also at the very end when it's pure. And we analysed this was based on a PCR method. It could be the qPCR or quantitative PCR or the newer version, like the digital PCR. And they both work very similarly. They can amplify and detect even one small molecule of residual DNA. So, so they're, they're very powerful techniques for quantitating residuals. Um, they also use primers that bind specifically to the DNA that we want to detect. So, they're very specific. So, you can detect specifically the whole cell DNA, the residual plasmid DNA. I think everything is moving more towards digital. PCR right now because it's much more precise, uh, but it also gives you the value direct and you don't need like a standard curve.
2: I think traditionally qPCR has been the the go-to method that's been widely adopted in a lot of cases. As you're working through a process, like Jorge said, the background matrix that we call the solution that the the cells or the virus is in varies, and so. With qPCR, a lot of times we, we have to extract the DNA in some way, um, and so that, that takes time and energy. And then also, as, as Jorge said, with quantitative qPCR, it's a relative measurement, and so you have to make it relative to something, and, and to get a, a quantitative value of the amount of a piece of DNA, you have to run a standard curve alongside. And in a highly regulated environment, standard curves to the outside may may seem like not that big of a deal, but they're quite costly to produce and maintain through time to make sure that the the quantification is is accurate. Doing extractions and maintaining standard curves is, is time and energy and money that a lot of our customers have come to Droplet Digital in order to avoid. So Droplet Digital is really sensitive and highly specific. We're able to take a sample and partition it into 20,000 different droplets. And each droplet is an individual reaction that is positive or negative. And so the PCR efficiency is less important in droplet digital PCR because it's an endpoint assay. So that allows us to, in a lot of cases, use diluted samples that are not extracted. So it saves some time and money there because we're tolerant to some of the inhibitors that are in the matrix. And then it's an absolute counting method, we call it essentially. So if there's a molecule in the droplet, it lights up and we count that and it's either positive or it's negative. And so with Poisson statistics, we can correct for co-occurrence of two pieces of DNA in the same droplet. And therefore we don't need a standard curve. It's literally the, the result is the count of the number of molecules that are in that sample. And so from an overall workflow, and we think about biopharma, so much is about being efficient with the resources that are available and everybody's trying to produce as much virus as possible and get to their patients as quickly as possible. And so anything that can decrease the time and energy spent on a quality control assay is really well received and adopted in biopharma. And so we're seeing this big shift into droplet digital just cause it's, it's a bit simpler.
0: Fantastic, thanks Mark. So of course we've mentioned PCR and qPCR what well, some of them the advantages and disadvantages of them? Jorge, could you start us off?
1: They're quite specific, uh, and this is done through the primers and and probes that you use. Uh, you can make them very specific to detect what you want: either whole cell or plasma DNA or vacuovirus DNA. And primers and probes are kind of similar for both techniques: the qPCR and the digital PCR. So I think QPCR is the one that has the most disadvantages and and just to reprise what Mark said, so you have first the method it's not as precise as as digital PCR can go. And second, you you need a standard curve, which as Mark said it like doesn't sound like a big deal, but but imagine if every day you wanna step on your balance you have to to make a standard curve. It makes a difference. No some crazy error. Um digital PCR or it is superior order in that way. It has the advantages of giving you the absolute values by calculating it as statistically as Mark explained it, and also because they count such a large amount of partitions, like in the case of droplet digital PCR, it's like 20,000 partitions that, that, that makes it very, very precise.
2: Yeah, to add to that, we're really going for, according to the FDA guidance, less than 10 nanograms per dose and less than 200 base pairs of, of size, it's the distribution of the DNA. And so at a baseline droplet digital PCR, we can get a CV of less than 10% very reliably. And in our customers' hands, I've, I've worked with with many of them, they're getting down in 2 to 5% CV. Across runs and and people and, and instruments, and so that's just from an efficiency standpoint to count on a platform and and get really low CVs, it just makes the whole process easier because you don't have to go back and repeat things and revalidate things and try and change the assay to get those CVs lower, which which happens a lot in qPCR just because you really have to have a highly efficient PCR, right? You have to have a 99% plus efficiency on your PCR. And if you get any inhibitors in there, it'll throw off the quantification. And so there's just more reproducibility challenges with, with qPCR. And then with the, the kit that BioRed offers, we actually have two kits, one for quantification, one for sizing. Quantification kit has internal controls and actually an automated data analysis process with a positive control. So it's basically auto thresholds where for these really standardized SOPs that have to be run in quality and QC groups in biopharma you know, having a human decide where a cutoff is, has some inherent risk to it and variability. And so we're really trying to automate as much as possible that in- entire process.
1: So one, one thing that about these two techniques and precision is, because you use primers and probes, you're, you're already detecting what you want to see. So for example, one thing that we do here is, is we complement it with a different technology, like generation sequencing which it's a very powerful technique where you chop all your DNA in the sample, you amplify it and then sequence it, and then you can align it. And, and this way you can know exactly what impurities you have in your sample. But this one is not really quantitative, it's semi-quantitative only. It can give you percentages but not like a value. So you can compensate for the things that they're missing in the qPCR with a different technique, like next-generation sequencing.
2: So I think the other key part that we we didn't really touch on too much because it's a little bit less standard and maybe a little bit new is the size of the dna so the fda is recommending that dna size distribution is less than 200 base pairs which is a little bit vague (laughs) so we developed a droplet digital pcr based kit with controls that's measuring different sized amplicons and again the beauty of droplet digital is that different sized amplicons a lot of times will have different PCR efficiencies, but we're counting endpoint PCRs. So that doesn't matter for Droplet Digital. And and so we're able to quantify and and give a recommendation for whether or not the distribution is above or below 200 base pairs with a simple Droplet Digital PCR method.
1: Yeah. Not only that, it's been a challenge before because the way that was done is by the gels and the gel separates your DNA by size. But here you your product has DNA, right? So your has DNA has made it so challenging in that way. So with digital PCR, one of the things you can do is, like Mark explained, you can set different type primers to span different sizes and try to this way get get your sizing your residuals.
0: Fantastic. Which brings us on to our next question, which is the the challenges then of residual DNA testing. But then, how could these potentially be overcome?
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges has been the icing, as we said before, and it can be done by using these different primer sets, but it's a challenge of its own because either you have to multiplex or do many PCR reactions. The second challenge here was to identify the impurities, right? And I think for that, we can use next generation sequencing because it allows us to see exactly everything that we have. But but I feel like for the true challenge for our residual DNA is not so much on the testing. I think we're getting there. I think the challenge comes on on the production part. The challenge is to produce AAV that from the beginning has very low residual or plasmid DNA because if you have very low from the beginning, you want to get a much much better product at the end.
2: Yeah, I think getting a standardized process through every single step, right? Optimizing every single step to be as efficient and safe for our patients as possible is really where I think the field is focused right now. Um, And so residual DNA is yet one of those quality attributes that needs optimization. And I think like Jorge said, we have therapies on the market, right? So they've figured this out and as an instrument provider, we usually call those as the homebrew kits. So each customer will have their own unique set of primers and probes that they've developed. And they've put a ton of time and energy into making sure that those work really well and that they work with their SOPs. And so... What we're trying to do is provide standardized kits that everybody can use and compare between labs, between companies. As they go, the FDA gets familiar with those kits and says, okay, we, yeah, we trust those. We've seen those before. That's really why we've committed as a company to put out this quantification kit. There's a lot of other assays that are getting standardized on digital digital PCR. So having as many of those on the same platform, I think has value for our customers. And then the size distribution, that one has been hand-poured gels, or maybe maybe you're buying a gel that's already precast and and running a size distribution that is not specific to your host cell's DNA, but is just any DNA. And so I think there coming and producing a kit again that's that's on the same platform with Droplet Digital allows that to be standardized and streamlined as well and like Jorge said the process development is really important right you want to make make your process more efficient so that by the time you get to the end there's guaranteed there's almost nothing there again that's where we think Droplet Digital PCR has value in that we're intolerant to inhibitors and so that allows you to test samples that you know more efficiently aren't aren't extracted from your in-process development as you're optimizing that process, right? You want to measure the amount of DNA and say, okay, I, I, I'm tweaking the the amount of benzinase maybe in this run. And what did that do to my residual DNA content? And having a quick and efficient way to do that, is, again, standardized, I think has a lot of value for speeding up the whole field to, to optimize their process to get as efficient as possible. So we're we're happy and excited to be offering these kits and kind of doing that, our part to help everybody achieve more, say, so and efficiently
0: brilliant so I think we may have touched upon a few of these but it'd be worth summarizing again what are the emerging technologies or processes that could aid the industry and ensure the detection of our DNA or are there any particular trends that you're noticing
1: yeah definitely I'm gonna put the PCR out there as an emerging technology too, because it's, it's relatively new commercially. So it's incredible how fast grown in, in such a short time. Um, but but in addition to digital PCR, one of the technologies out there is, it's called long read sequencing. And, and it's like the next generation sequencing I explained before, but with the difference that you don't chop your DNA so you can get long reads. And I think this is a very, very good emerging technology, because it, it might, might tell us not only the sequence of our DNA in our samples, but but it also tells you information about the size, because it can read through through the full size of your residuals.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, Droplet Digital has, has been around for 10 years, and some of our customers have adopted it for residual testing on their own, and in 2022 is our first kit that's really provided by us, optimized by us, and validated by us. Uh, and so it is emerging in that we just launched that earlier this year. The long reads, I agree, is is an interesting way to really highly characterize what species are in there. And by species, I mean, what sizes and amounts of DNA that's that's not um, the viral genome. And then the other trend that I see is most everyone is using itchy cells to produce. Like Jorge said, SF9's insect cell line is is another option that people are starting to think about and use and look at. I think there'll be other cell types, either variants of HEK or other cell types, maybe non-mammalian that, that come online potentially. And so it's not just the technology, but it's also the assays and what type of host cell is being used that the kit providers like Biorad and others, as well as the process development teams are going to have to now incorporate different methods for testing other cell types that are used as as host cells.
0: Fantastic. Thank you both so much for your time today and for your excellent discussion. It's been great to speak with you both.
1: No, thank you. I enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks. Yes, thank you so much.
2: Appreciate it.
0: And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast sponsored by Biorad. Look out for our next episode coming soon.